131. Grab your Bibles. We're digging in. No cute intro today. We're just digging in. We are in our, I think it would be the 11th uh, Psalm of this 15-week series. Psalm 131. Next week, we're going to look at the longest Psalm in this series. Okay, Psalm 132. Okay, so you can be, maybe start, maybe we don't come next week because I'm preaching. It's the longest Psalm. So that means it's probably going to be the longest sermon in the series, okay? But uh, this week, we have the shortest psalm. Now, that doesn't mean we have the shortest sermon. But we do have the shortest psalm in this series. So let's look at it. Let's see what the Spirit of God wants to reveal in the Scriptures today. Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God abides forever. Amen. The human heart has a magnetic pull toward many sins. But I think there is a strength in this pull uh, far greater than others toward pride. Some would argue that pride was the first sin. Even looking at Satan in his desire to uh, become like God and then fell as an angel. That his root heart issue was a haughtiness, a, a pride. Even when you look at Adam and Eve and kind of the temptation and how Satan lured Eve and Adam into disobedience. That this uh, uh, ironic false promise that if you do this, you'll know something that God knows. Matter of fact, you'll become like God. And so she, hearing these enticing words, uh, uh, sees the fruit that it's enticing to the eyes, and she took it, and she ate, and Adam was there uh, doing what most uh, sinful men do, absolutely nothing, and participating in this sin. Pride is uh, a real struggle for the human heart. There's a magnetic pull. It's a core human sin. And how does pride manifest itself in our lives? Right, Because you have the condition of our heart, but the question becomes, how does it begin to manifest itself? What does pride 
look like would be the question I would raise. Well, first of all, I think that pride leads us to an overestimation of who we are. Meaning we think we're better than we really are. Okay? Some of you struggle with this. You think you're better than you really are. Oftentimes, I'm seeing that even in my own life. That I think I'm doing better than I really am. But if you look across the world, you can see that pride is something that is very pervasive and it's causing destructive things in our society. I mean, this whole mess in Charlottesville, right? Is this not just a clash of egos, right? One particular group of people saying, we are better than you. We are supreme. No, 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 we are. No, 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 we are. There is definitely a sense where when we look at the news, we see that much of the problems that we have are traced back to pride. Now, this as an aside, we didn't say anything direct last week, but man, did we see preacher after preacher that stands on the gospel come out and just emphatically say, without any political ties whatsoever, that any sort of racial supremacy is completely abhorrent to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So anyone that thinks that they are, or a race is, better than another race, is completely contradictory to the true, revealed gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet we see that all these events, and all this mob this and mob that, and all the violence, and all the fighting for rights, and, and, and first place in any way, shape, or form, it's all really, in many ways, an outworking of our pride. Okay? And so we see it. And yet what's interesting is that we are a people that exhibit this pride. It gets manifested in the way that we live. And yet at the same time, there's such a, a, a craving for peace of mind. There's such a craving of, of rest of reconciliation, of things are the way that they should be. Peace in the world. And so we have pride being exhibited and on display, and at this very same time, this outcry for peace. Well, those two things never go hand in hand. You can't have pride and live in relationship to other people with haughtiness of heart and expect there to be any sense of pride in your heart or in the world. And so we begin to ask the question, how can we obtain peace in this world? And how can we, at the very same time, uh, be seeing ourselves as superior to others? doesn't make sense. You know, I see this in my own life, pride. You know, I, I don't think I would overtly come out and say this, right? But these are the things, as I look at some of the conflicts in my life, in my home, some of the struggles that I have, some of the frustrations that well up inside of me that I go, why am I so frustrated? Why am I so angry? What's, what's really the issue here? And I find myself in, in seeking the Lord, often saying that the reason I'm so upset is because I have this crazy idea that I'm the most important person. Right? right? Isn't that often what pride does? It gives you this sense that in certain situations that you're the most important person in the world. I mean, I think radical individualism that we have in the society uh, gives us to think that, right? That me, it's about me. I'm the most important person. My feelings, my desires, my pursuits, my career, 
my this, my that. It all boils down to me, and I can see that. Another thing that I often find myself frustrated about is like people uh, don't recognize all that I do, right? Some of us, it may be in the context of the home where there's conflict or there's not really a sense of encouragement, right? That people are speaking and saying, thank you for all that you do. That there's this overwhelming sense of heaviness that can sometimes come because you never seem to do enough to gain people's uh, uh, approval, right? So when you have this sense of no one is recognizing what I'm doing or what I did, that, that's really an issue of pride. But I think the biggest one is this. And I think this kind of comes full circle to what we see going on in the psalm. Is that oftentimes I'll find myself, again, I don't say it overtly. It's subtle in my heart. And I wonder if it's subtle in yours as well. It's very simple, but it is the root, I think, the, the, the worst manifestation, I should say, of pride. Is when at the end of the day, no matter what we're going through, no matter what day it is, no matter what situation that we're facing at home, at work, in, in, in marriage, in family, is this. I don't need God. I find myself uh, wrestling with that. Do you? That I can figure this out on my own. I'm sufficient in and of myself to make this happen or to see this right. You know how you know that you think you don't need God? Your prayer life is inactive. Right? Your prayer life is dormant. You can confess all you want. I need the Lord. You can sing it. But if in the quietness of your soul, if the moments where you have margin with your time, that you do not find yourself crying out to the living God for assistance, for all that you have and all that you face, guess what? You're saying to God, I don't need you. You see, pride is a core issue. And yet David says, Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. He's coming to his Lord with a statement that says, Listen, let me express my heart toward you in prayer. That my heart is not lifted up. It's not haughty. It's not proud. The second way I think that Pride manifests itself in our life is that we see it in an underestimation of others. Right? That we look at other people and we say, oh brother, <laughs> man, they're a mess. You know, there's this underestimation of others. They, they're not good enough or they're not cool enough. And I think if I could just speak a little social commentary, maybe I'm just becoming a curmudgeon closing in on 40. But I think Facebook, for us, becomes a thief of joy and rest and satisfaction because oftentimes all that it does is line us up with the lives of other people. How come nobody liked my post? And what a crappy post his was. And he had 400 likes. Right? Like, right? like clearly his post was not as good as mine. My photo, I mean, how cute is my kid? Your kid's not cute. It looks terrible. You think of all these things that go through your mind, but really Facebook is a format for just constant comparison. Comparison. 
It's a thief of joy. It's a, it's a platform where ego just gets so much opportunity, doesn't it? Look at my steak dinner. Listen, nobody cares. Okay? I mean, I, I care because that's why I posted it. But for me to think that you care about my steak dinner, it's just kind of a little egocentric, isn't it? It's kind of crazy. Anyway, comparison is a thief of joy. And I think oftentimes we have an underestimation of others, a, 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 an overestimation of self. And David says, listen, my eyes, they're not raised too high. I'm not looking down on others. My heart is not proud. My eyes are not lifted up. Right? My nose is not in the air. Right? I'm not proud. I'm not looking down on others. And last, I think this is a way pride manifests itself. It does so as what Keller calls an overreaching ambition. Right? An overreaching ambition. A lot of it comes back to just, I can figure this out on my own. Uh, the way that I do this personally is I say to myself, I can fix this. Right? We're assuming an authority and a sovereignty and an ability that we just inherently don't have. I can fix this. Or maybe another way to put it is, uh, we try to control things that we can't control. Right? There's something going on that seems out of control, and we, we finagle, we manipulate. We make phone calls, we send emails. Right? We, we spend more time on it. We think a little harder, and we say to ourselves, if I just get ahead of this, I can control everything. Listen, if I just plan really well, if I make all these plans, if I put it in my calendar, then I have control over my days. Everyone start laughing, right? Because none of you have control over the events or circumstances of your days, no matter how hard you try. Listen, I try that. I try that, and then life happens. You know, try to control things I can't control. I try to figure out things I cannot figure out. I bite my fingernails. Well, maybe we should do this or maybe this is the core issue. I'm always asking the question, why? I'm trying to get to the bottom of this situation. Why are they doing this? Why are they thinking this way? Always analyzing. And people say to me all the time, what do you do? It's like, well, I'm an overseer of people. That's what I do. That's what an elder does. I'm in the business of overseeing people. Like, what are the tasks? Well, there's a collection of nothingness to some degree, like a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this. But I'm an overseer of people. And so I recognize that sometimes I have an overreaching ambition, even in ministry and in family. As I minister to my family, that, that I'm trying to control, I'm trying to fix, I'm trying to... Uh, um, uh, make sense out of things. I'm asking the why question, always trying to answer it. Maybe you struggle with these very things. The reality is, is that when we try to do something or try to achieve something, try to uh, get some goal that we've set out in our hearts, that in many ways we come face to face with the fact that we're just not capable of orchestrating all of that. Now listen, this isn't a, a, to say that ev all ambitions are at their root pr proud. There are holy ambitions. Right? There are things that God compels us to do, calls us to do, commands us to do. And, we, and He gives us His Holy Spirit and His Word and His people to be graces that enable us to walk in faithfulness to Him. So I'm not 
coming out and saying that all ambition is wrong and unholy. But what I'm telling you is this, that there is an overreaching ambition that goes out of the bounds of what God has called you to do and what God has made you and created you to do. Control, to fix, to manipulate, to achieve things that are overreaching. And I've said before, I think that God is calling me, and I wonder if He's pressing into you, that it's time to really think about all of our ambitions. Think about all the things that we're setting our heart to, that our mind is fixed upon. To begin to temper that ambition. Begin to think about what God has really called us to. And maybe the root of all of that ambition is not God's calling on your life, but really your ego that you intend to serve. But David says, listen, my heart's not proud. My eyes aren't lifted up. And I'm not concerned. I'm not occupied with things that are too great and too wonderful for me. I think the root of a lot of anxiety is us trying to be God. Trying to manipulate. Trying to control. Trying to fix. Trying to uh, um, get, get a grasp on things that in our own nature, we never have the ability to grab onto. And it's time for us to come to the end of ourselves, just like David does, and just come to the humble recognition that it is only the Lord that is able, it is only the Lord uh, that is sufficient. And that's what David has done. He's expressing his heart before God. This is a prayer whereby he is expressing his humble heart before God. He's saying, oh Lord, my heart is not proud before you. It's humble. And the question I want to just throw out there, why does this matter? Right? It's kind of an odd thing for you to come before the living God and say, hey Lord, I'm humble. Right? It's kind of an odd thing. Usually it's a, a confession of sin. Lord, I'm proud. I'm a mess. I need you, Lord. But David approaches God and says, Lord, my heart's not proud. My eyes aren't lifted up. I'm not occupying myself with things too wonderful for me. I'm humble before you. He's concerned to communicate his heart before God. Why? Because the state of his heart before God matters. You know, last week we asked the question, um, what do we do with the depths of our sin? Do you remember that question? What do we do with the depths of our sin? That was an important question that we never really ask. We don't ask it enough. Because we're always concerned about the practical realities of life. Well, here's a big question today that I think we can often overlook. In all the practical management of our lives, we can ask the question honestly. We can do an honest evaluation of our heart before God. What is the state of your heart before God today? What is the, the, the state of your heart before God? I think this matters. That's why David is concerned to communicate the state of his heart before God, to be open and to be honest, and to come before his Lord who sees him perfectly. Say, Lord, 
I've been here on different terms before. But today I come before you. My heart is not proud. My eyes are not lifted up. I'm not concerned and occupied with things that are too wonderful for me. So where is the state of your heart before God? Is it proud? Is the Spirit of God working on your heart right now to weed you of the poison and peril of human pride? The I can, I will, I don't need God mentality and approach to life. What is the state of your heart before God? David remembers his calling as king. And the rejection of Saul, right? The tall Saul who did not obey in his heart. And Samuel confronted him, right? And, and Saul was rejected as king. And then Samuel rose up and he went to Jesse, the father of David. And it was in that time where David was called to be king. And you wouldn't have picked David. Why? Because he was the youngest. But he remembered that God looked at what? Not outward appearance. But God was concerned for His king to what? Have a heart that was humble before Him. David knew this. You see, this isn't just a prayer where he expresses his heart before God. This is a testimony for David. A testimony of where he came from. That David was called by the Lord on the basis of his heart before God. Not on the basis of outward appearance. That the Lord looks on the heart. That's why this matters. Because the Lord looks on the heart. His heart is not proud. But it is in a state of peaceful satisfaction. He says, but I've calmed and quieted my soul. Right? His heart is calm. You see, pride and all this ambition and all this trying to fix it, it all leads to this, the rolling seas in our soul. But you see, when we come before the Lord humbly, it flattens it out. It smooths it out. That we're no longer living and pursuing in a state of constant discontentment. More. More. I'll show you. I can do this. I can figure it out on my own. We come to the end of ourselves and we see that the soul finds satisfaction in humble submission to the Lord and nowhere else. I've tried that. I've lived that. I'm king. I've had at my disposal every resource. I, if there's anybody in Israel that doesn't need help, it's me. I've got it all. As a matter of fact, we look at David's life and we see that he struggled with pride. There's a pretty woman. She's married. Okay, I'll still have her anyway. Matter of fact, I'll kill her husband. David struggled with ego. You see, he wrestled with pride. He tried to figure it out. And he fell in pride, didn't he? But he came to the end of himself. In the wrestling of pride and, and the, the, the haughtiness of heart and the looking down on others. 
came to the end of himself. It's a testimony of what God has done into the heart of David. And he's come to a place of calm, of quiet. Man, you read that song, or, or that psalm, you say, but I have calmed and quieted my soul, and you here are such a, a restless mess in your heart, and you wonder, how can I have that? How can I have that kind of peace? How can I know that kind of contentment? How can I conclude sincerely that I am not haughty in heart, that I'm not looking down on others, that I'm not living in the discontentment and anxiety of pride, but I'm calm. And the state of my heart before God is smooth. Like the seas when Jesus in all of His authority in heaven and on earth said to the raging sea, Peace. Be still. Some of you crave Christ to look at the stormy nature of your heart and look at you with all of His authority and all of His sufficiency and just look at your soul and say, peace. Be still. And all of a sudden, all the raging waves are gone. And there's such tranquility and peace in the deepest part of who you are. I'm telling you, you will not achieve that through pride. It only comes on the other end of pride. It only comes when you humbly recognize the sufficiency uh, that only Christ has. Humble submission to Christ. He says, I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Such an odd image, right? Let's think about that for a minute. What is an unweaned child like? It's like you and the Steelers lose, Maisie. Right? Just whiny pants. Crying and screaming. Feed me! Now! I'm going to die! <laughs> if you don't feed me now! They are not satisfied ever. <laughs> Always screaming in all hours of the night, demanding that they be calmed and quieted by their source of food, its mother. But the weaned child has come to know that the mother will provide. That there's no need to kick and scream. That the weaned child has been satisfied, has been quieted, is at peace. Actually, it could be translated here like a weaned child upon its mother. So you almost get the image of the three, four-year-old being carried by the mother. And the head on the shoulder. Remember, these are journey songs. And so, uh, the, the, maybe in writing, it's possible that the, that the psalmist is seeing people journey and carrying their children. The weaned child is calm, is being carried, is dependent, is at peace, not screaming for satisfaction. They've already received it to its fullest degree. Is that the state of your heart today? 
Do you come humble and content and satisfied like a weaned child being carried by its mother? Are you kicking and screaming in your soul? I've got to have this. I've got to have more. I I, 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 I just don't have all that is necessary for my contentment. If I just get this, if I do this first, if I show them this, if I show them that, then I will be at peace. That's That's a chasing after the carrot that you never can seem to grasp. This is a testimony of David's humble submission. Paul had that testimony as well, right? Didn't he? Philippians chapter 3. I had it all. If anybody could have been proud, and for good reason, it was me. Listen, I was the man spiritually. Let me be clear. I had this on my resume, that on my resume, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. In regard to the law, blame us. Basically, I have every right to just say, I kicked butt spiritually. I mean, I was killing it. But he looks at that and he says, all of that, I counted as loss. It's rubbish. It's garbage. In comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. You see, Paul knew what David felt. He understood that in all his pride and his religiosity, it really led him to a state of restlessness. And he did not find rest in his soul until he found rest in Jesus Christ who came and lived and died and rose again to redeem him from his sins. And so Paul could join with David and say, I'm no longer proud. My, my, my heart's not proud. My, my eyes aren't lifted up. I'm not looking down on others. right? I, I, I'm not occupying myself with things too wonderful for me. Listen, I've come to the end of myself. And the only thing that's worth anything, the only thing that provides lasting peace, uh, uh, solace in my heart, is humble submission to the Lord. The soul only finds satisfaction truly in the Lord. And that's what he's saying. Matter of fact, in verse chapter 4 of Philippians, he goes on to say, listen, I know what it's like to have mad money up in my pocket. I know what it's like to be completely broke. My bank accounts will be empty. But listen, I rejoice. Why? Because I'm content in every and all circumstance. I have all that I need. I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. That is sufficiency, that is satisfaction, that is peace of mind, that is rest, is found in Jesus Christ. Your soul can only find satisfaction and rest in humble submission to Jesus Christ. That's what we're reminded of today. Only in the Lord does the soul truly find its satisfaction. That's where David is, that's his testimony. That's what Augustine said. Thou hast made us for thyself. And our heart is restless until it finds rest in thee. You restless today? You're searching for peace? Search no longer. It's in Christ. It's in Christ. His person. His resurrection. His death. All that He has done for you. Find your peace and joy and rest and and solace and tranquility in the presence of Jesus Christ. 
and in relationship to Him. Jonathan Edwards also said this. He testified, The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. The saints throughout the ages have always borne witness to the fact that everything that this world offers us, every vain pursuit that we come up with on our own, every proud look, every proud attempt is all in vain in the search for peace and rest in the soul. It is only found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Only in the Lord does the soul truly find its satisfaction. If you're here today with a restlessness inside of you, know that it's in the Lord. Trust in Him today. Don't leave today without embracing Him by faith, seeing all that He is. And I'm being very quick about that. So if you have more questions about what it means for Jesus to be the all-satisfying Savior of your soul, and what it means to humbly submit to Him and to be rid of pride, see me after the service. I will explain more. But I just want you to know that David has found his soul satisfaction in humble submission to the Lord. And that's the only place you're going to find it. But this is an invitation implicitly and a command for us to look at the state of our hearts. This is a testimony of David, but it is an invitation and a command for us as well. It's about time that we are resolved like Jonathan Edwards about the state of our heart before God. In his resolutions, he says this, number 48, I am resolved constantly with the utmost niceness. You like that word? Oh, so nice. Niceness and diligence and the strictest scrutiny to be looking into the state of my soul that I may know whether I have truly an interest in Christ or not. Where's the state of your soul today? Will you be resolved to evaluate today Every day. In, in, in view of the Scriptures, in light of the Gospel, as you face every circumstance in your life, will you be resolved to look into the state of your soul to see whether or not you truly have an interest in Christ? Whether you're truly satisfied in Him and in Him alone. Will you be resolved with Jonathan Edwards? If you ever want to feel like you don't care about your walk with God, read all those resolutions. <laughs> it's kind of like, man, he's serious about Jesus. It's an encouragement, really. It's an invitation for us to evaluate our heart before God and to see if pride is present, to see if our soul is truly satisfied in that only source of satisfaction. And he ends with a command. He's saying the truly satisfied soul places its hope holy in the Lord. Holy in Jesus Christ. He's making a connection between a soul that is at rest 
in the presence of God. And the soul that is looking toward the future with hope. The next step that I take, I can, I can have hope. And as, as difficult as it is to be humble, given our magnetic pull to pride, it's just as, as difficult in our world today to be people of hope. Right? You watch the news. If I hear one more Christian say, oh man, it's going to get worse. I'm like, oh my gosh, what are we, the doom and gloom people? I mean, in some ways, yeah, humanity's sin will continue to get worse. I get that. Right? We're better at sinning, right? But understand this, there's nothing new under the sun, right? We're just, we're just sinning now, but man, they were really good at sinning 2,000 years ago as well. Oh man, it's only going to get worse. Listen, it's going to get better because God is in control. It's going to be perfect someday, our existence as the people of God. So don't buy into the lie of the world that says, oh man, we're doomed to destruction. Sinners, yes. Those who rebel against a holy God, yes, they have no hope. But those who know Christ, those that rest in Him, we can have the expectation that every single promise that He's made will come true. So He says, oh Israel, listen. You're like a kid being held by its Lord. By its mother. You can rest in Him. You can find your satisfaction in Him. And guess what? Every single step is going toward a glorious future. Hope in the Lord. Today. Today. Now. So whatever circumstance we're in, no matter how difficult that it is, no matter, no matter how gut-wrenching and, and just energy-sapping and how, how big the obstacle seems or how unfair this is for me, no matter how long this trial will be present in this life, hope. Hope. Because the Lord is holding us and carrying us. And His, His promises will be kept. See, that's what distinguishes us as the people of God, right? We are partakers of His promises. And we are those who hold on to hope because we know that He is faithful to do whatever He said He would do. And this testimony is just another, another um, brick in the mortar that strengthens our foundation as a people marked by hope. No matter how hard it is to hope, we are called to it because the promises of God will be kept. And I want to spend so much more time on this, but I'm not going to. But I want to say, there are specific situations in your life that I could quickly name. People say, how's Renovation Church doing? I say, they're doing great. Church is doing great. But our people are enduring a lot of very hard and annoying things. Right? I I see, I look around, I, I get the prayer requests over texts. I meet with people. I see you face to face. I see the look in your eyes. And so does Jeremy. Matter of fact, I know you see each other's looks. I see the weight that you're carrying. I know the difficulty that you're facing. And I know that it's hard. And I know that you're asking yourself, will this ever end? Is there ever going to be a light at the end of the tunnel? Well, guess what? There will be an end. And it will be glorious. And that light will shine in your life because you're a child of the living God. 
and he's carrying you. He's holding on to you. And he's made a promise to his people and he will keep it. You can bet the farm on it. So hope in the Lord. The soul that is satisfied can hope in the Lord. No matter how hard the situation is, no matter how long we are enduring it. This is a powerful prayer where David's expressing his heart to God. It is a testimony of his battle with pride. And guess what? The Lord's purpose is one, at least in this moment in his life. And we know that it ultimately did. It created humility. And he gave him peace. This is an invitation for us to examine our own heart and to go before the Lord and to be open and honest about where we are. And this is a command for us. As people who have satisfaction in our soul, we can hope in Him both now and forevermore. We can have hope. Amen? My wife's a gardener. I pretty much just stay in the house and watch. That's what I do. Air conditioned was created for a reason. Okay? We have walls for a reason so that we don't have to go outside. Right? Anyway. My wife loves to be outside. Well, last year we bought these two very expensive hibiscus plants. Okay? We went to Hafner's. We're like, we're going to buy local. We're like, that was a mistake. Anyway, we love Hafner's, but that was a lot of money. So we put these hibiscus plants out. They were beautiful all summer. And then Doreen had a great idea. You know what she said? Let's bring them inside. And I thought, yeah, that'll be great. Let's put them in our bedroom next to the pillows. No, I said, okay, where do you want to put them? So we bring them into the dining room. In all winter, these things look terrible. Do you remember these? are like jeepers. This didn't work. And I'm looking at the window, and there's like 4,000 bugs on the window. Little small. I'm like, this was a very bad idea, right? What happened is I got a mite infestation. They were toast. But Doreen said, let's try to revive them. I said, why don't we throw them out? So we bring them outside. In the first month, I just laugh. Because they're so infested with bugs. There's no life. And she's there spraying them with the hose, putting the white powder on. Oh, we're going to try to revive these things. And I'm like, you're crazy. Let's just go buy new plants. You know, Little by little, she got an upper hand on these mites. It looked dead. It looked hopeless. We were going nowhere in this situation. But she kept caring. She kept pouring water on it. She kept killing bugs. And little by little, all these little green things began to grow. Grow faster than the mites could eat them. And I'm like, oh brother, we're committed to these things, aren't we? And she just continued to care for this. When all hope seemed to be lost, we got a bud on there, on one plant. So I'm still holding out hope that we have to throw out one of them. No, seriously, over time, when all hope was lost, when all life seemed to be gone, we saw this thing grow. We saw life return. And finally, about a week ago, we saw that. Three months of pouring love, pouring water and food, and dealing with the pulling out all the things that were killing it. 
And we all learned a lesson in that regard. It was a metaphor for us about people that are facing hopeless situations. This hibiscus. That it may look bad. It may feel bad. We may make fun of these things and say, there's no hope. There's no life. But you know what? In the midst of the difficulty, while everybody's naysaying, <clears throat> husbands, while everybody's naysaying, God's up to something. He's producing something in us. And over time, when your marriage seems like it's not going to make it, when your job feels like it's never going to end, you're never going to have peace in your heart, you're never going to make it through this financial difficulty, God is never going to get us through, all of a sudden you see the pink flower and you know that God is up to something wonderful and beautiful and glorious. You see, the promises of God have been made and He's watering our lives and He's causing the things that destroy us to be pulled out like pride. And He's slowly making us into the people that He envisions us to be. And He is going to bear the beauty, the fruit that brings glory to His name. So don't give up. Don't quit. Don't lose hope. Because God is faithful. Amen? Let's pray. Our Lord, our God in heaven, you are high and lifted up. And we come before you this morning with David's heart. We say, My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not looking down. My mind or my feet, however you want to look at that phrase, it's not occupied with things too great and too wonderful for me. Together we have seen the all-sufficiency of Christ. And our soul has been quieted and calmed within us. We place our hope in you. In Jesus' name, amen.